Thank you for listening to Value-Based Care Insights, a podcast by Lumina Health Partners. In this series, host Daniel J. Marino, Managing Partner of Lumina, talks to top experts and thought leaders in healthcare to help you navigate on the journey to value-based care in the ever-changing landscape of the industry. The goal of this series is to bring you disruptive success strategies by leveraging Lumina's experiences, stories, and insights from working with health professionals and organizations across the country. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to invite you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think about the episode and any questions that are top of mind. Now let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Value-Based Care Insights. I'm your host, Daniel Marino. In previous episodes, we've spent quite a bit of time talking about value-based contracting. And in working with many of the providers, there's been quite a few questions about how we set up a successful value-based contract. How do we optimize our performance to create a level of success that not only is good for our patients, but are good, is good for our physicians? And frankly, it's scary. It's scary for our physicians as you move from fee-for-service to fee-for-value. And frankly, it's scary for healthcare leaders as well. I've often said that if if you're a a system CFO or a hospital CFO, it's easy to determine whether you have a good fee-for-service contract or not. And it's typically whether it's your rates actually produce a positive income stream or let's say at least allows you to increase the amount of patients that you're seeing or or something of that nature. So it's fairly easy to to assess whether you have a good contract or a bad contract. When you move into fee for value though, it's different because there's a lot of other factors that come into play. We're measuring quality, we're measuring cost, we're measuring our, our performance. And all of that is tied to some level of an outcome and it's difficult to measure. So through some of our listeners and through some of the the comments that we've heard, a lot of the questions have have come up around how do we create the right level of protections in a contract, in an agreement with the payers to ensure that not only are we successful, but that as we begin to move forward with value-based care and be able to manage our population, we're actually getting the right level of credit for the performance that that we're creating, for the outcomes that we're creating. Well, I'm very pleased today to have a a wonderful guest, somebody who I've known for quite some time, an industry leader in the legalities of healthcare law and contract law. Um, Hal Katz is a partner with Hush Blackwell. He's had 25 years plus of experience in healthcare law, has a national practice working with many healthcare providers across the country, large focus in managed care, large focus in network development, just a wealth of experience. Happy to have him on the show today. Hal, welcome. Dan, thank you. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. Uh, great to be with you today. And I think you nailed it with with the 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 setup for for our conversation. It's a scary time for providers moving from fee for service to to value based arrangements, uh, and, it, and it's it's a very different business model. So uh, the points you raised are are, are right on uh, right on target. Absolutely, and and I'll tell you, Hal, as I kind of think back 
over how the relationship with payers have evolved. It certainly has changed. I think it's changed more recent over this last year, year and a half than it has, I think, probably in the last 15 to 20 years prior to that. I'm seeing a lot more challenges that are occurring between the relationship of the payers and the providers. I'm seeing that I don't think there's ever been really great collaboration, but it seems like it's even, it's even worse now. It's even harder now to get a level of collaboration between payers and providers in such a way that it's mutually beneficial to both parties. What are you seeing as you're working with providers and even working with payers across the country? Dan, I, I am seeing um, some real challenges, and, and I think it's related to a, a, a couple of factors. Primarily, it is the result of non-existent relationships or minimal relationships between providers and payers. Back in the managed care days, when in the mid-80s through the early 2000s, when managed care was getting started and then fairly established uh, in many parts of the country, there was a lot of regular interactions between health plans, payers, and providers. It was necessary for those risk-sharing arrangements more involved contractual arrangements. Over the last, I would say, five-ish or so years, those arrangements have decreased surprisingly. You know, I, I know we've had accountable care organizations with, with Medicare, but that has been a, a rocky um, road. Uh, and serious managed care and, and value-based arrangements have been slow to really um, get traction across the country. And, and so the relationship between the payer and the provider has been thinner. There's been a lot of turnover within payers with payers, and payers have had a hard time retaining qualified uh, and experienced provider reps and network representatives, rep, uh, network developers. Providers are often starting over each time there's a contract issue or a new contract opportunity with with a payer, uh, and so I think that's created some real challenges. And there's there hasn't been the same interest or willingness in, to, to, to invest in those provider relationships and support the development of a provider or a, a, an arrangement with the provider because you know, those kinds of products and those kinds of arrangements have not been a high priority for either the payer or the provider in most markets. And I think building on some of that as well, and the relationship piece is so critical. But we're also seeing that payers seem to be shifting the risk to the provider community. They want the providers to assume more risk around cost of of the care that's being delivered, of where the patient is, is going. And I think it's also then fueled these different types of, of contracts that we're starting to see. And it's also fueling I think a quicker need to move into fee for value, but to assume some level of a risk-based contract. Are you saying the same thing as you start to have some of these conversations with providers? I am. I, I definitely see a desire now to shift that risk more to the provider. Uh, and that's really challenging because most providers aren't in a position to 
appreciate, uh, assess, or or manage. They're not ready for to right. move into risk, right? And it scares the heck out of them. For sure. As organizations, as providers, start to move into from fee for service into fee for value, and this is a question that that comes up to me quite often. What are some of the key elements that you see that are, are really critical to make sure that we need to have in a contract that that's spelled out that maybe protects the providers? You know, and I guess to kind of cue it off there, one of the things that come to mind is like data sharing, right? That and and are there other things that you're seeing that are really key things that that are areas of protection for providers? Definitely, Dan, as I'm as I'm sure you've covered in your past episodes. You know, risk sharing involves the provider agreeing to be responsible for a specific set of services and the costs associated with those set of services and can even include hitting some performance measures, some specific performance measures in order for the provider to have that financial outcome that they're expecting. It's the basis for them saying, okay, this is going to be a good contract for us to enter into. So each of those elements has to be covered uh, in the actual terms of the agreement. Those, Those fundamental assumptions have to be written into the agreement. Otherwise, there's no obligation on the prov- on the payer, excuse me, to, to honor those terms or to create that arrangement. So, you know, how members are assigned to the provider, you know, what specific services the provider's going to um, uh, agree to be responsible for, uh, what measures they're going to be responsible for uh, have to be spelled out in the agreement. Oftentimes, what I see when I'm helping organizations negotiate some of these contracts is how the providers are looking at, let's say, quality is different than how the payers looking at quality. I think another issue is just that level of data sharing. The, the payer has the claims data, which is really powerful, right? I mean, not only does it tell the provider what's occurring with their patients in their organization, but it also informs the provider what's happening outside their organization. And the provider has the quality data, right? So you you need to bring the two together to truly impact a lot of the outcomes of the patients that you're managing. How do you build those protections in there? And have you seen, I guess, second to that, have you seen any contracts where data is not included in, in those? Sadly, Dan, yes. Unsophisticated providers um, have entered into those agreements where they don't put any affirmative obligations on the payer to provide those regular reports to the providers. Um, but what you're you're alluding to is absolutely something that needs to be written into the agreement. There needs to be a specific provision in the agreement that the payer provides monthly, quarterly, and annual reports. Um, that include the kind of information that the provider is going to be relying upon, not only to manage the, the, the care they're providing, but also to know how they're doing um, in, in, uh, in delivering the care and meeting the performance measures. So, that, so those are quality related, that's you know, encounter related. It's also financial reports, especially if the provider is participating in a risk pool 
or being paid on a per member per month basis. So more of a capitated kind of a value-based arrangement. Right, right. And I'll, and I'll tell you, Hale, I don't know how a provider can be successful if they don't have access to the data. I had an opportunity about a year ago, maybe, maybe a little over that, to help an organization negotiate and contract with a payer. And um, this organization had, I, I don't think it had a very good relationship with the, the payer to begin with. This organization did have some pretty good data, had some pretty good quality. And they, this was the first time they were actually moving into a value-based contract. It was just a performance-based contract, but the payer was adamant that they were not gonna share their data. And, and how can you, in my mind, how can you be successful with that? And my advice to the provider organization was, you need to walk away. You can't engage in a successful value-based contract without being able to, to share data. And um, that was a little surprising to the payer because I think the payer thought, well, heck, we've, we've got an opportunity to, to move into a new value-based contract here. This organization is gonna be excited. And yet when they said, well, look, if you don't give us the data, we're not going to engage. I think that was a little surprising to them. Uh, and that has to be a, just an unsophisticated payer, a payer who hasn't um, had much experience with value-based arrangements with providers. It almost feels bad faith. I mean, you can't get to your destination, you know, driving in the dark. Um, and that's what um, participating in a value-based arrangement without data is equivalent to. There's no way yeah. you know where you're going. You're, it's guesswork. Yeah, I, I, I agree. So when you think about value-based contracts, there's a, there's a balance there between the cost of managing the population that you're contracting around, and then there's the quality outcomes, right? There's a balance there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think a big differentiator, a major differentiator between value-based value -based contracts that are occurring now and sort of the HMO contracts that occurred in the early 2000s, and you alluded to this, um, was in the early 2000s, it was all about cost. There was quality really wasn't a part of the equation. Now under value-based contracts, quality is very much part of that equation. How are you seeing in your contracts, um, what, what does that balance look like? Is it still predominantly cost management driven or are you seeing a pretty good balance between managing the cost and maybe coming in under a cost threshold but ensuring that you are delivering up to a, a certain quality threshold as well great question dan i would say on the medicare managed care side and medicaid managed care side it's pretty balanced but on the commercial side i'd say it's much more financial still yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. That's Me interesting. Medicare is holding the health plans to quality measures. That's a big part of those contracts, both with CMS uh, for Medicare and, and for the applicable state for, for Medicaid. And, and, you know, contract decisions are made based on those quality measures. Uh, so it becomes uh, really, really important for them to make sure that they're hitting those quality measures. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me too, because I think when you think about the, the um, Medicare Advantage plans, the, they're very focused on their star ratings. The star ratings are predicated on the quality 
that is being driven off of how you, you know the providers and how they're managing their plans and so forth. So you're absolutely spot on. Quality is a big part of that. But I guess in the commercial world, right? There's really nothing that's that's con- there's really nothing that's connecting quality to whatever that performance outcome is of the contract. Um, I guess it's really up to the providers to build it in. Yeah, definitely. Well, and and I think it also puts the providers in an interesting predicament because especially a clinically integrated network or even an ACO that is really focused on managing the population, reducing the cost, even risk stratifying their population. So they're helping sort of these high risk patients or they're managing the rising risk population. You can't just manage it around costs. You have to manage it around the quality outcomes. For sure. Incorporating that in is critical. It is. I mean, because they're, they're so connected and the impact on the provider is going to be greater than the impact on the payer if quality measures aren't hit, especially as you get more into the full risk um, kind of uh, contracting model. Uh, poor quality is going to uh, uh, result in higher costs and the, and, and the pro- provider is going to be impacted and that's going to come out of their pocket. So when you when you're seeing the the different quality measures, Hal, are you are you seeing more of the quality measures that are claims based, maybe the HEDIS measures, or are you seeing some of the the quality measures being more clinical outcome measures, or is it a combination of both? Uh, it, it it depends on where the arrangement falls on the continuum of the value-based contracting model. Is it you know, uh, value-based light where it's a traditional fee-for-service payment with a kicker based on uh, key, some key performance measures? Um, then you know, I see that being more, I, mean, I, I can see that being actually a, a hybrid um, all, all the way out to um, more of the uh, fully uh, risk-based contracting model, um, but they really do vary, um, uh, Dan. I would say most of the time it's heavy on the HEDIS side, though, in my yeah. experience. Yeah, that's what that's what I've seen, too. And I guess it kind of gets back to what we had talked about early on. Um, the, the payers are building these contracts really around what they know, and what they can manage, right? And they have the claims data. So they're they're building these around the HEDIS measures because frankly, that's the data that they have. I think it is really important for the providers to present their case that, look, it's not all about how we're managing the claims. That's important, but it's really around how we're managing the clinical component of the, of the patients and the clinical outcomes because I've often said um, the claims data the claims data tells you what's going on, but it doesn't tell you why it's happening. The why comes from the clinical data, and if you can mirror the two, oh my goodness, you've got a great story to tell. So, Hal, um, let's talk a couple of minutes about some of these risk-based contracts, and and you alluded to to this, um, you know, around around some of the data and so forth. Some organizations some clinically integrated networks or ACOs that have become a little more mature are starting to assume some levels of 
of downside risk. And the, the payers are definitely putting pressure on these organizations to assume some level of downside risk. But it's very scary for organizations. It's scary for the physicians. They don't want to have to write a check. It's scary for the CFOs because they're seeing shifts in utilization from inpatient to outpatient and trying to you know, manage and cover their variable costs as well as their fixed costs and, and so forth. What are some of the elements or some of the protections that you see that are important to include in a risk-based contract or a downside contract, if you will? Dan, the first thing is, is making sure that the group, well, let me say, we're gonna assume that the provider has run the financial modeling necessary to understand how this is gonna impact the organization from a traditional fee-for-service payment arrangement to value-based. And in running that model, they've, they've identified how many members is the minimum number of members um, where it makes sense to, to have this uh, value-based arrangement, whether it's a good portion of their reimbursement being based on the, the quality measures, or it's a bundled arrangement, or it's a um, capitated um, arrangement. Um, how many members? Is that 500 members or is that 1,000 members? So that the, the value-based component, that financial arrangement doesn't kick in until you have that minimum number of members assigned to the provider. And then there's also some protections we build in so that, that if there's a change in that threshold falls below that minimum number for two consecutive months, it bumps back down to the traditional fee-for-service um, rate. That is one main protection. That's you know, a great point, Hal. That's a great point because I'll tell you, the modeling is critical, but understanding what you're contracting around, I think is equally important. Otherwise, you're going into this a little bit blind. Definitely. I mean, you know, the other important provision to include is how that rate gets adjusted that reimbursement rate gets adjusted. Um, again, it depends on the kind of value-based arrangement being entered into, but if the risk loss or the acuity of, the, the, of this population um, is greater than what was expected, um, or there's an increase in the premium that the payer is getting for this population that we're responsible for, that, that increase um, passes through the, um, the value-based arrangement. So it's an increase, it's a percentage increase in the uh, PMPM or in the risk pool or uh, the amount available for the incentive payment. Right, right. Yeah, I agree. And so then being able to manage that, especially if there's changes in that premium becomes, becomes important. Where do you see stop loss provisions coming into play? Where do you see risk reserves coming into play? Do these become part of the contracts? Are these protections that the providers can consider as they're, as they're engaging in these discussions or these contracts with the payers? There is. Almost always the health plan is going to drive the stop loss requirement or the, the, the stop loss coverage and they'll usually include it in the agreement if the, the provider is taking on significant downside risk. 
and then there's a negotiation of those terms. Does the payer obtain it and charge the cost to the provider? Does the provider have the opportunity to get it themselves um, so long as it meets some minimum requirements? If it's not in the um, uh, contract, but the providers are, aren't sure how they're gonna do financially, it is something good to explore on their part. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I would agree with you, but I'll tell you, I'm a huge proponent of really modeling out the, the population and understanding what you're getting into and even running different scenarios, right? Sensitivity analysis based on risk stratification of the population, um, changes of acuity, being able to understand what the different cost factors are. I think if you can model that going in, then you could represent that in the contract. But equally important, then once the contract is signed, you then have a path that you can start to operationalize that will help you drive to that success of that contract. I think without having those pieces, it really leaves the provider very vulnerable. For sure. Dan, the last thing I'll say on the, those contract issues, any obligation that you are expecting or depending the, the payer to perform in order to be successful under this arrangement really needs to be written into the agreement. You know, for example, if we're relying upon the hospital, I'm sorry, the payer to have good rates with a hospital or have uh, ambulatory surgery centers included in the model or sufficient um, uh, specialists of a certain uh, specialty included, um, in order for us to be able to manage the cost and the quality, then those kinds of provisions need to be written into the agreement. Because you can do the greatest job possible, but if, if you need that facility to admit your patients to, or, or you need physical therapists to do the follow-up care, and, and you're on the hook for the, the outcome, and including the costs, um, but those those providers aren't available because the health plan couldn't get good contracts with them, then this is not going to be a successful arrangement. No, that's a great point. And that, I mean, that, that'll blow up the whole contract, right? That'll blow up your whole ability to, to manage the care, not only the, the cost piece, but certainly the, the quality piece. You're, you're absolutely right. Well, Hal, this was, this was great. I'll, I'll tell you, there's just so many things to consider as we, as provider organizations start to enter into not just value-based contracts, but eventually move into these, to these risk-based contracts. And it's a scary, it's a scary time for a lot of providers, even the ones that I think have had a lot of success in value-based care, they're still a little bit concerned. Any final thoughts, any pieces of advice you'd give to providers or maybe some of the healthcare leaders that are, are listening in? I think we're moving to value-based. Um, when we get there to the point where it represents a substantial part of any provider's line of business, you know, that's TBD. Is it five years from now? Is it 10 years from now? We don't know. But I think that there's still um, uh, work that providers can be doing to prepare themselves, understanding their organization, understanding their costs, understanding their quality levels, and, and then as soon as they um, take that first step, the next step would be to explore some um, value-based light kind of opportunities with the payers to experiment a little bit and to work on building a, 
uh, a, a better relationship, a deeper relationship with the payer. So when the industry, when the market um, uh, starts moving more toward these value-based arrangements, the providers will be prepared. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. And I'll tell you, building the relationship in my mind is so, is so key because if you're going to be successful, you need to have that collaboration. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Well, Hal, this, this was fantastic. I, I really appreciate your time and, and um, your insights and providing to, to our listeners. If any of our listeners want to get a hold of you directly, um, you want to share your, your email or your contact information? Absolutely. Uh, first, you can find me on LinkedIn, and I am very responsive uh, on LinkedIn. I'm Hal Katz, I'm Hush Blackwell. Uh, my email address is hal.katz at hushblockoil.com. If you, if you don't find me on LinkedIn, you'll find my, my uh, website and my phone number. Uh, give me a call. I'd be happy to talk to you. Great. Well, thanks again, Hal. Really appreciate your time and would love to have you back sometime down the road to, to share additional insights. Dan, I appreciate the invitation and I would love to do this again sometime. To our, to our listeners, Hal brought up some great points today. And as we've talked about many, many times, moving into value-based care is inevitable. I think it really comes down to preparing the providers, understanding what you're getting into. As Hal mentioned, making sure that the contract clearly represents where you are and where you want to go. And then having that right level of protection but still being able to collaborate at the same respect will really drive the success. So again, thanks to Hal for a wonderful discussion today. Until next time, I'm Daniel Marino. Everyone have a great day. Appreciate you listening. Thank you very much. We want to thank you for listening to Value-Based Care Insights Podcast by Lumina Health Partners. Lumina is your partner on a journey to value-based care and all the pivots and challenges our industry faces daily. To learn more about us, visit us on LuminaHP.com. If you found value in today's conversation, subscribe to us on all major podcast platforms, including Apple and Spotify, and leave us feedback. Be sure to check out our show notes at LuminaHP.com insights. Join us again where we continue to take a deep dive into what lies ahead and invite conversations with some of our colleagues and industry thought leaders on new trends that are emerging and how we continue to navigate and thrive. Until then, have a great day and stay safe.